This is a boat. Anyone ever been in a boat? I don't know if the boat was this size. I'm assuming a little bit bigger. Um, First century boats out on the Sea of Galilee were built a little bit differently. They weren't aluminum, (laughs) for one, but maybe a little bit grander in size. But a boat was very familiar to some of these disciples. It's what they had known. It was their occupation. They were extremely familiar with boats, with the Sea of Galilee, with weather patterns. Like, they knew how to cope and how to get along and how to do this. So this boat here is a reminder to us tonight about something that we're going to look at. In Matthew chapter 8, if you have your Bible, you can go there. If you want to follow on sermon notes online or through the app, you're welcome to do that. But we're going to look at a, a story as we kind of look in this idea of building ourselves as a disciple. Remember, we we're taking some time and working our way through the gospel of Matthew and trying to identify how did Jesus disciple the disciples? It's like, so what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? What does it mean to, to follow after him? And I know there's all kinds of different ranges of people in here. There's folks that are here maybe for the very first time, and I think it's awesome that you're here. I know it takes courage coming to a new place, and I'm thrilled that you're here. In fact, I'm thrilled that you're here tonight. We've obviously messed with the order of service already because, like, we just did two songs. There'll be more, but we wanted to mess with you a little bit because that's kind of what the story is about. It it seems familiar, but yet it was radically different, and the disciples were messed with in a way that I think would mark them the rest of their lives. And so that's been our prayer, is that somewhere in here, in some shape or form, Jesus would mark your life, maybe rattle some things, change some things in a way for you, that you would see things maybe a little bit differently. So in this series, we're, we're trying to understand what it is to be a disciple. We kind of looked at Matthew's calling last week and how Matthew, the author of this gospel, inspired by the Spirit to write this down, he, he was a, a tax collector, a traitor, really, to the Jewish people. And yet, Jesus calls him one day, and he leaves everything, probably great wealth, leaves it all behind because he, there's something about this Jesus that's just captivated him. And so he follows after Jesus, and he has this growing willingness in his own heart to kind of keep going on this journey, to get closer and and have more proximity with Jesus, to kind of grow in his faith and be stretched in ways. And that's what we looked at last week, that one of the markers of a disciple is this growing willingness, a kind of a willing heart that doesn't have to have it all figured out first, but is, is willing to say yes to Jesus and we'll figure it out as we go. Because there's ways and times where Jesus is just gonna stretch you. He's gonna challenge you. He's gonna call you to do things that is just different than what the world would say or what we would even want. And, and it's challenging. It's not easy. Disciple is not an intern. Remember we talked about that. Internships are really just a clever way of people to get you to do what they don't want to do and for them to say, here's just some assignments. Well, that's not a disciple. A disciple isn't a person who just does assignments for Jesus. 
remember the famous saying that we talked about last week, that may the dust of your rabbi always be upon you. Meaning, to be, in a, to be a disciple of a rabbi, uh, Jesus was, was to almost like apprentice your life after. That, that the way they lived, what they taught about, what they spoke about, what they did, how they reacted, you wanted to become more and more like that. You just replicated more of the master that you followed. And so you begin to think the way they would think. You would react the way that they would react. And so that was the, the goal here. It was an apprenticeship of your whole life, not just assignments and you, then you clock out and you go home. It, it involves so much more. It involved everything about you. And discipleship is a big, big deal. There, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a pastor who stood up to the Nazi regime, writes this, Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. That discipleship matters, and it's a big deal to Jesus. Jesus isn't looking for more fans. He's looking for followers. And that means that we give him authority into our life, even when we don't like it, and even when we bristle against it, or we want something different. So last week, we looked at this idea of this growing willingness that we see in Matthew, that we see in Jesus's heart as he heals this leper. And I want us to look back at Mark chapter 8, because it's the story that we're going to encounter tonight. And I want us to just hear what transpires and what goes on. So here's how it happens. Matthew chapter 8, verse 23. Then he, speaking of Jesus, then he got into a boat and his disciples followed him. Suddenly, a furious storm came up on the lake, so that the waves began to sweep over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us. In Greek, it's sozo us, like rescue us, redeem us, because we're in big trouble. We're going to drown. He replied, you have little faith. Why are you so afraid? And then he got up. And he rebuked the wind and the waves, and it became completely calm. Then the men were amazed and asked, What kind of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? It's a short encounter. It's a story that begins to take off about evening time as dusk is setting. It's going into nighttime. You can see that through the rest of what's transpiring. You, you can begin to understand the Sea of Galilee is small in comparison. It's about 13 miles long, 7 miles wide. It's about 150 feet deep at the deepest point. It's pretty deep the whole way through. The shoreline is about 680 feet below sea level, surrounded by mountains. And so tempest storms can come on a whim and come up pretty quickly. Usually don't come at night, usually come in the afternoon. But many of these people who are on this boat with Jesus, like, they're pros. They've logged many, many hours on this particular sea. They know how to navigate storms that come up. But there's something about this storm that catches them off guard, and the danger is real as it begins to sweep over the boat. And you could tell because they're professionals. Usually, professionals have it together, right? 
something goes a little haywire and they've been through this enough and they can figure it out. And, and I don't know if the disciples that night tried to figure it out. That's my hunch. It's probably what you would do. It's what I would do. Like, okay, we got this. You know, it's a storm. It's raining. It's, yeah, it's a little stronger. You realize in the Sea of Galilee, when the storms really get going, waves can actually get up to about 15 feet high, which seems really weird on a lake. But because of the geography around it, it can get that place. And there's real fear creeping up in the lives of these disciples. But here's what I want you to see tonight. I don't want you to get stuck in the storm. Because I don't think the story is really about the storm. I think this encounter, for those of us who want to be a disciple of Jesus, is about something so much bigger. We tend to focus on the storm. When our lives are stormy and things are out of whack or things are haywire in our lives, we want Jesus to calm the storm, and he does that in this story. But that's not the point of the story. So don't get stuck there. The story is really about our vision of how we see Jesus and who we think he really is. Our our understanding of all of who he is. Jesus has power and authority over every area of life. Does he have power and authority over every area of your life? Because he has authority. We see that in this story. What's interesting about this story is, is the, the word authority, if you just look through Matthew chapter 8, if you just take that chapter and you look through it, we see this all over. In the very beginning, remember, Jesus is coming down from teaching the Sermon on the Mount, and there's that leper we looked at last week. And Jesus' heart is willing to reach out, and he touches him, and then heals him with what he says. The touch was to heal his heart. The words healed his body. And Jesus has this willing heart. He has authority over disease. We see this just a few verses even before this storm story. He's healing disease. He has authority over it. He has authority over creation. That's what we see here. You go on to the end of chapter 8. He has authority over the demonic. This whole chapter is all about the authority of Jesus and the power and might that he has and what he's about. So what is authority? How do we wrap our brain around that? Well, the New Testament's written in what language? Mostly. Greek, right? And so if you look at authority, there's a couple different words in Greek for authority. One is uh, exousia. Exousia is unquestioned authority that is led and tied into a person's position. They have jurisdiction or domain over this realm. They have the ability to have control over this whole realm. That's how you could describe exosia. So, for example, as a parent, I have authority over my kids, more so when they were little. So I can say to my kids, clean your room. You know what I'm not saying in that moment? Hey, let's have a discussion about whether you should clean your room. That's not what I'm saying in that moment, right? As a parent who has authority over maybe our littler kids, clean your room means what? Man, you guys are good parents. Okay. 
The other Greek word related to authority is this word uh, dunamis. And dunamis is used about 120 different times in the New Testament. Loosely, it refers to this idea of strength and power and ability. It's where we get our root word for dynamite. Ooh, that sounds powerful, doesn't it? It is. Uh, in the game of football, how many of you are excited for football? Be back. Football is coming. Some of you are like, I don't care. Head injuries. Okay, whatever. Uh, the game of football, those who have dunamis are maybe those 300-pound linemen, right? Those 300-pound linemen can hurt anybody anytime they want. They could just pick people up and power drive them into the ground, right? They have dunamis, this explosive kind of power. But you know who has real power and real authority on a football field? the people in the black and white striped shirts. Why? Because they have authority over that realm. And they can look at a 300-pound lineman and say, go to, the, go to the bench. You're out. They have real authority over the whole realm and over the dominion of that area. And they can take someone who has great power and they can bench them, kick them out of the game. So the one with real authority and real power is the exosia, the one who can have jurisdiction over a realm and over an area and over things. And that is what we see in Jesus throughout chapter 8 and in this particular story. At a moment's notice, earlier in the chapter, he blows a whistle and disease flees. It's gone. In a moment's notice, he speaks and the wind and the waves obey. In a moment's notice, he shows up to those in a hurting soul who are struggling with demonic power, and he says, be gone. And they're gone. He has ultimate exosia, authority over the whole thing. I think sometimes we forget how big Jesus is. I think in our cultural context, we've done a great job of helping people see that the creator of the heavens and, and the earth is Jesus and that he can be your friend. And he can be. And he is and he wants to. But let us not forget that he is the creator of the heavens and the earth. And he is way more than just your buddy. I think sometimes I can make Jesus a lot smaller than he really is. And the challenge for us is to recognize and to re-recognize that he is a lot bigger than what we give him credit for. And so Jesus stands up in this storm. It's this seismic type storm. The Greek, really for the storm itself, is where we get the word seismic. It's almost like earthquake activity, size storm. I don't know if you've ever been through a hurricane, if you've ever been through an earthquake, but it's a big deal, and it kind of moves things around, and you're, you're fretting a little bit. And that's why seasoned professional fishermen who understand a boat can get to the place where they're freaking out a little bit. In Mark chapter 4, verse 38, you can read, they, they go to Jesus and they wake him up after they've tried everything in their own power, and they go and they see Jesus, don't you care? 
that we're going to drown and die while you're napping. How did Jesus sleep through this? I have no idea. How many of you are heavy sleepers? You might have an idea. How many of you are really light sleepers? You got no clue how Jesus is doing this. But he's been doing ministry all day. He's emotionally zapped. Why? Because Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully man. And so you've been emotionally zapped before, and it drains you. And so Jesus is napping in the boat, and they come to him, don't you care that we're going to drown? Have you ever asked that? God, don't you care? I've been trying and applying every single place, and I keep getting rejected. Nobody wants to hire me. God, don't you care? When I walk into her room, I've got to reintroduce myself every single time. The Alzheimer's is just washing the memories away that we've built. God, don't you care that I'm all alone trying to raise my children the best I know how? God, don't you care that I've been battling this struggle for years and it's destroying all those I love? God, don't you care that the hallways seem eerily quiet? since they've been gone. And I can't even hear you. God, don't you care? I don't know what I'm going to do facing this challenge. I'm not sure how to get around it or through it. God, don't you care? My hunch is you've asked that question. Maybe it was internally, maybe you didn't even want to whisper it out loud, but you've asked it. Jesus stands up in this moment. I know it's a challenge. Um, because when the storms of life come, it can really rattle us. I know for some of you, the storm is blowing right now. And it's rattling you. And that's why the story matters. They get Jesus. He gets up. He looks at them. You have little faith. Why are you so afraid? What a haunting question. See, it's a haunting question when Jesus is small in your mind. God, don't you care? I don't know how we're going to fix this. God, I don't, don't you care? I, I, I don't understand how we're going to get through this. See, when Jesus is small, and then Jesus asked this question, why are you so afraid? See, earlier in this text, what we see is Jesus said, hey, we're going to go to the other side. And then can I just remind you of the very first verse of how this starts, verse 23? Then he got into the boat, and his disciples followed him. Jesus has already said, we're going to go to the other side. Jesus gets in the boat, his disciples follow him. Sometimes following Jesus will lead you into unexpected storms. But your Savior is powerful enough and close enough that you need not fear sinking. He's bigger than that. Jesus already said, we're going to get to the other side. And when he's with you, it's going to be okay. It doesn't mean it's all okay. It just means it's going to be okay. It doesn't mean you get to avoid all the storms, but Jesus stands up, asks this question. I'm sure it's haunting for them. 
And then he rebukes the wind and the waves. In Greek, that literally means this. He commands the winds and waves to stop. Another version of Greek says he scolded the wind and the waves. I love that as a dad. Jesus gets up and says, just stop. And scolds the winds and the waves. And everything goes calm. Can you believe that? Can you imagine what that would have been like to be there? Storm, freaking out. I'm going to die. Storm, bigger than any storm I've ever been in. All of a sudden, water is like glass. Skies clear. Stars are shining. Can you even get your mind and your heart around what that would have been like? See, for the disciples, they were overwhelmed by their circumstances one moment. And in another moment, they were undone by who was in the boat with them. What kind of man is this that the wind and the waves obey him? You know what that means in Greek, literally? Where are you from? That's literally what they're asking. Where are you from? Because nobody speaks to the winds and the waves and they listen. There's a lot of people that yell at the storms in life and the storm just keeps on storming. Nobody speaks to the storm and it stops. What kind of man are you? And they're overwhelmed. In fact, the text says they're amazed. In one verse, it says they marveled. Do you know what it is to marvel? Let me tell you. It's to worship. To marvel is to worship. It's to be undone by someone who is so much greater than you ever gave him credit for and that you ever saw him as. He's so much bigger. In an instant, they go through this. Here's the memory verse for this week. It's Matthew 8, 27. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Sometimes in our journey of faith, we forget how big God really is, and we need to be reminded of how big and powerful and active Jesus really is. We need more of the time of marveling, of amazement. That's why solitude is so vital to our spiritual growth. Because it's an opportunity for us to unplug from all the other distractions and all the other noises and all the other voices that are screaming things for us to be quiet enough to hear from our Creator and to recognize He is our friend and He is right there, but He is so much more than that. Don't sell Him short. Don't make Him less than. He's bigger than what you could ever get your mind around or your heart around. He's huge. He's big. I imagine this scene playing out in this boat, right? We get through the storm. Jesus yells, scolds the wind. It stops. It's quiet. All the guys, I'm sure, are like, I'm not going to talk first. I don't want to be the first one to talk. You know, Peter was probably like, oh, I want to say something so bad. I'm not going to do it. 
because I don't understand what just happened. Amazed. The sky is out. Stars are there. When's the last time you actually went outside and just looked at the sky on a clear night? I remember camping in the Grand Canyon. Um, I was an older teenager, and we camped down by Grand Rapids in this kind of beach area down there. And I remember looking up at night, and even though the canyon kind of skews your view a little bit, I've never seen so many stars than I saw that night. A couple other times when I've been out away from the cityscape and, and light doesn't drown it out a little bit and you can see them. Have you ever been there? Think about a time where you've just been in awe of the sky and the stars at night. It's amazing. We're people who measure things by inches. We're people who do this for, like, this is how we get our brain around things. We measure in miles. But you realize inches and feet and yards and miles mean absolutely nothing in the size of our cosmos. They, they mean zip. We are 93 million miles from the sun right now. Try to wrap your brain around that. You are hurling through space at 67,000 miles an hour right now. Do you feel woozy? No, thank gravity. We forget how big God really is. This understanding of trying to help us understand that when you understand God for who he really, really is, it brings a greater perspective to what really matters in life. And when you understand his authority for who he is and what he's done for you and how he loves, then it puts life in a different perspective that it's not all about me. It's a whole lot more about him. And maybe you'll get to a place where you understand that maybe you've shrunk him a little bit. The vastness of our universe allows us a glimpse of the might and the majesty of our creator. And we struggle to understand that. To measure the distance of the universe that God has created, you would need a ruler that's 5.8 trillion miles long. That's how far light travels in a year. That's the size of ruler you need. And that's even minuscule to compare to the galaxy of which we live. If we were to count the stars in our little galaxy, the Milky Way, the candy bar galaxy, okay? If we were just to count the stars in our one galaxy, every single second, we'd name a new one, we'd count them. How long would it take for us to count just the Milky Way galaxy? 2,500 years at one per second. Get your mind around that. Isaiah sounds a whole lot more powerful now. Isaiah 40, to whom will you compare me? Who is my equal, says the Lord? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all of these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each one by name. 
because of his great power and his mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Whoa. If our Milky Way galaxy could be shrunk down to the size of the United States continent, North America, our solar system would be the size of a quarter. Yeah, Mercury through Pluto. Pluto was a planet when I was a kid, so we'll keep it in there. Our entire solar system would be the size of a quarter. You know what you can't see on the quarter? The little tiny blue speck that you're on right now. You know who else you can't see? You, sitting at 1825 North Alvernon. Listen, I'm not trying to make you feel small. I'm trying to show you, you are small. God is so much bigger than what we give him credit for. Jesus is so much greater than what we can wrap our mind around. That's one galaxy. That's the Milky Way galaxy. We're a blue dot that you can't even see in one of the arms of that galaxy. Show the next picture. This is the Hubble telescope taking a picture into deep space, 2009. Every one of those little blips is a galaxy, not a star. The creator of the heavens and earth is very capable of calming any storm. He has exosia, ultimate authority. But the beauty is that the creator of the heavens and the earth rides in your boat. And that is the gift. And that's why the question, why are you so afraid? I'm right here. I I said we were going to the other side. It doesn't mean I'm going to steer you away from every storm. Because I want you to depend on me. And I want you to see that I'm dependable. Jesus is so much bigger, friends. And that's the invitation I have for us as we're going to keep moving with service. Because we wanted to create space for you to understand who's in your boat. And for you to take some moments to get perspective again and for you to worship. See, I think the moment those disciples saw the storm gone, and it says they were amazed, who, what kind of man is this? That is an incredible question. And that is a question every single person needs to wrestle with. What kind of guy can do this? Jesus is far more than a good teacher. He is far more than a nice humanitarian. He is far more than a good miracle worker. He is far more than a person who has good philosophical things to say in life. He is far more than things that he would say, this is the way I want you to live because it's the best possible way. He is bigger than all of that, friends. And he's in your boat. And so as we transition to worship, here's what I want to read and invite you in 
to taking a moment to understand, okay, you're on a quarter, you can't be seen, you're no big deal, but you are a big deal. Because Isaiah says he calls every star by name and he knows your name. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows your life better than you do. And he rides in your boat. And this is what the Apostle Paul says about who Jesus really is. And then I'm going to invite us just to worship and to lean into this. Here's the Apostle Paul in Colossians says this, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven, things on earth, things visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, so that in every single thing he might have supremacy. He has exosia, authority. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwelling in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth, things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God, were enemies in your own way because of your evil behavior, but now you have been reconciled through Christ, through his physical body, through death to present you blameless and without accusation. So God, as we lean back into worship here, I pray that we just create some space for us to do some work of growing wonder in our lives. There's so much in the swirl of life and the accomplishments and things that we're trying to achieve and go after. I pray these next 20 minutes would just be minutes where we marvel and we're amazed at who you are. Father, forgive us for the ways that we have shrunk you down or tried to cap you off Forgive us for the ways that we've just kind of put you on the side and, and you could have a little bit of a voice into our life, but you don't have authority into our lives. And God, you deserve our increasing awe of you. So in these next few moments, would you increase our awe and our wonder and our amazement of who you are? May you receive this worship as a gift that can never totally capture the grandness and the greatness that you deserve. But the best we know how, we bring it to you. Would you speak and move in our hearts? Would you help us to see you for who you really are, Jesus? That that question of what kind of man is this would rattle within our brains and within our hearts all week. that you would bring description to that.